Good evening, everyone. My name is Marla, and I am a partner here at Mercy View. Um, tonight we're reading from Romans 13, 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Welcome to Mercy View again. I introduced myself earlier, but I'm Brad, one of the pastors here, and uh, just so glad to, to be with you tonight. Um, a few years ago, I was uh, driving north on Sheridan, headed to our house, and at the intersection of 51st and, and Sheridan, in order to get to my house, you have to take a right. I came up to the, uh, you know, came up to the into the lane, the right-hand lane, to turn right. And uh, what I did was, I didn't really stop, okay? Just full confession time, I, I basically just turned right. And this turn is about maybe 30 seconds away from our, our house. You know, for the most part, I thought, you know, this is smooth sailing. And sure enough, this particular time, in my rearview mirrors, I saw the blue and the red lights pull me over. So pulled into my neighborhood, probably 15 seconds from where... Uh, we live, and uh, this is what the officer said to me. He said, you did not come to a complete stop on the right turn. Now, I, again, full confession, I actually didn't know that was a law. Um, I uh, thought that you could just turn right. If they, even if it was red, just make sure, you know, no cars are coming and, and, you know, just turn right. It's like, no, no, the law is you come to a complete stop on a red light, even if it's a right turn, and then you turn you know, I um, wasn't really happy about that. Uh, he didn't give me a ticket, but those 15 seconds from that place to my house, I was furious. I was so frustrated. I thought, you surely have better things to do with your time than to stop some dude who's just going home, turning right on a, on a red light. Um, but in that 15 seconds, the Lord began to bring about some conviction immediately. And this is what began to um, happen in my heart. Uh, it was like God was saying, Brad, what do you think laws are for? You know, like laws are, are not for you, Brad, to just do what is right in your own eyes, but rather it's a way for um, you to be protected and to protect other people as well for safety purposes, right? Maybe even we could say things like it's for security purposes, Laws are in place for us, boundaries are in place for us so that we can be safe, we can be protected. And, and, and actually the, 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 the outworking of that is that we can flourish as people. Um, we kind of talked about that last week, right? And in some respects, the government is, is supposed to help us take care of ourselves. And so one of the ways that you and I take care of ourselves is we stop on a red light when we're turning right. But it makes you wonder, right? It makes you think about the issue of, of laws, like why they're here, why they exist. And, and, and in our sort of horizontal reality, the reality that you and I live in, 
um, the purpose of laws are what we just said. It's, it's meant for things like safety and security and protection. Paul tonight is actually going to remind us of another kind of law. And it's a law that you and I are to live by. It's, a, it's something that ultimately does lead to flourishing. And it, it leads to flourishing within us, but also with those around us. And it's a, it's a principle. Uh, it, it's a guideline that he wants to drive home as he continues to help us think about how you and I are to live as Christians in response to the grace that God has given us. And so we're continuing our series tonight in, in the book of Romans in a series called Anthem of Grace. Um, this series is, is really that. It's what Paul is he's attempting to say, okay, if you have received the mercy of, of Jesus in your life, um, that is not just something that's meant to terminate in on itself. It's actually meant to be lived out in a certain way. And we've seen that over the last few weeks, right? Um, Paul has been expanding these circles of relationships. And um, tonight he does something really interesting. In fact, you could argue that what's happened over the last few weeks is we've like been a camera looking at a city moving to a nation, um, just moving up, 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 30,000 feet view even last week as we talk about governments and nations. But in some ways, we're moving right back down to the city today. Uh, and actually, we're going beneath the city to the foundation of, of, of that city to get a, an idea of what outward-facing grace really looks like for us. There's something that should be driving, should be motivating, should be compelling us to sing this anthem of grace out loud in our lives with others. So as we look at that idea tonight, I want to invite you just to see one thing, and it's this. The law of love frames the anthem of grace. The law of love frames the anthem of grace in our lives. So if you have your Bibles or electronic devices, keep them open to Romans chapter 13, beginning there in verse 8. That's where we'll begin tonight. Let me just read again what Paul says at the very beginning of this uh, passage in verse 8. Here his, are his words. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, actually, the, those first uh, four words of, of this uh, verse, um, we're going to spend just a little bit of time on it, but not a lot because this is not really the thrust of what Paul is talking about tonight. But he is doing something here in these first four verses that are connected to what we talked about last week. Last week, if you remember, we looked at Paul's encouragement for us to honor the government that we sit under, to carefully and conscientiously submit to the, the government, to give what is Caesar's, uh, Caesar's. And so um, that part of, of giving unto Caesar what is his, Paul talks about the issue of taxes, paying our taxes. As much as we believe, and I said this last week, that there are probably far better things that our money could go towards, the Bible, we said last week, commands us to pay our taxes. The only instance in which we're allowed to disobey the government is when it tells us to do something that the Bible forbids, and the Bible doesn't forbid that for uh, paying our taxes. But Paul is actually, in the first four words of verse 8 here, tackling another financial idea. Uh, it's another financially related matter. He says, owe no one anything. Now, some Christians have believed that what that means is that you can't borrow money ever, 
Like you should never have any kind of, of debt of any kind. And debt isn't good, but that's not what Paul is saying here. I actually could only find one like fairly respected uh, leader, uh, thinker, theologian who, who would say like those four ver- uh, words mean don't borrow. Some of you guys not, might know the name of, uh, of George Mueller, who was a 19th century evangelist. That was his take. But he is like the only person I could find that said uh, that, that what, these verse, or what these words mean in this verse is no, no debt ever. Paul is just simply saying this, um, we must pay our debts when they're due. There are dangers with debt for sure. We can be slaves to the lender. It can reveal an underlying greed or love uh, of the world if we are in debt. And if you're in debt, you are likely not as free to give as generously to the local church and other, uh, other opportunities. But Paul is not saying that all debt is wrong here. He is simply saying that you are obligated to pay what you owe when you borrow from someone in a timely and wise way. Now, Paul is actually using this idea to uh, like a launching pad to talk really about what he has in mind here in this passage. Look there again at verse 8. He says, owe no one anything except to what? Love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Paul is saying here to not owe anyone anything except for one thing, and it's this word, this word that gets used so often, right, that, that we have a hard time wrapping our heads around. He says, don't owe anyone anything except for love. Now, I think what Paul is doing here, we get a clue um, all the way back in the very beginning of this book in Romans 1, verse 14. You don't have to turn there, but here's what Paul says there in Romans 1. He describes his debt to the world using the same kind of language, saying, I am under obligation, or, or we could say, I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. So follow me here. Paul pays his debt to the world because of what God has done in his life by preaching the gospel. That's Paul's payment of love. How did Paul get into that debt? In Romans 1 verse 5, he says, through whom Jesus, we have received grace. So Paul has this debt of love, this payment of love. The way that he is paying that is by preaching the gospel because he has received grace from God. Paul has, Paul is saying this, when Jesus loves you, loves us, by giving his life for us, we become debtors of love, not to him. We, we can't do that. We can't pay back to him what, what, what he has done for us. But we are actually now debtors of love to one another. But notice this. It's a kind of debt created by something that we received. And it is not paid to the one who gave it, but to others who also don't deserve it. So here's how 1 John 4.11 says it. Beloved, if God loved us, we also ought to, ought is another way to say we are in debt to, love one another. Look with me at the very end of verse 8. Paul adds something to this idea of love owed to others. He says, for the one who loves another has what? Fulfilled the law. And he actually says it 
again in verse 10. Look there. He says, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul actually makes this same statement in another letter he wrote to the Galatian church when he said this, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, why would Paul say that something fulfills the law when in this same book, back in Romans 6, he made the point that we are not under the law, but under grace? In Romans 10, Paul said that Christ is actually the end of the law to everyone who believes. Now, the law that Paul is talking about here in these verses is the law that God gave the Israelites back in the Old Testament. We see this in Exodus and Leviticus. (coughs) Excuse me. And that law that God gives included um, the moral law, the ceremonial law, the full, like the, like the whole idea of, of the law was given to the, to the Israelites in the Old Testament. And the, the, the part of the law that you probably know, you heard Sean reference it earlier, was included in that and it was called the Ten Commandments. So we need to say a couple of things here in order to understand why Paul seems to be introducing a law to us, the law of love. First, as New Covenant Christians, if you're here tonight, you say, Brad, I've placed my faith and trust in Jesus. I'm following him. I'm walking with him. Here's what we believe Jesus did in his life um, and ministry. Jesus himself said this about his relationship to the law in Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. When Jesus said that, What he meant was that he did not come to do away with the law. He actually came to fulfill it. Or maybe we could say it this way. He came to embody the law perfectly in his life, which is what he did. He lived a perfect life, the life that you and I should have lived so that he could be the perfect substitute. And he did this so that he could obtain the salvation that you and I couldn't have obtained on our own. Colossians 2 says it this way. He, Jesus forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So first part is Jesus um, didn't do away with the law when he came. He rather fulfilled it through his perfect life. But But secondly, we also need to say this, because of what Jesus has done, and yes, because as Galatians 6.2 says, we are not under the curse of the law, but the, the, the law of, of Christ, you and I, as we talk about this tonight, this, this law of love, we need to understand that what Paul is doing is talking about a different kind of relationship that you and I have with the law after conversion. Are you with me? So, so here is what Paul is after here. There is no doubt, the Bible says this, God, before he saves us, gives the law to us, and it has one purpose. It is meant to be um, a mirror for us. Here's how Paul says it back in Romans 7, speaking of the purpose of the law in his own life. He said, yet if I, excuse me, yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. The law was a mirror for Paul. Like if the mirror is a symbol of what God expects from Paul, Paul clearly saw there was a gap between his sin and the righteousness of God that he could not make up. 
And the same is true of us. We look into the mirror of the law before conversion and see that we do not measure up. And friends, that is bad news. But we just said that in the perfect life of Jesus, he lives the life that we should have lived. And when we place our faith and trust in him, we trade our sin for his righteousness. It is truly the great exchange. When we look in the mirror now, we see Jesus. And this brings us to the shift that you and I should see as we think about the law in our lives. When Paul says that love is the fulfillment of the law, he is actually echoing something that Jesus said all the way back in Matthew 22. Let me just read this story to you. It's going to help us, I think, as we figure out what what Paul is up to here tonight. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, Jesus said to the lawyer, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 22 is he is saying, he's saying this, if you boil down the first four commandments, you're going to see um, uh, our relationship to God or the way that our relationship with God should look. And then if you boil down the, the, the commandments six through 10, you really begin to see the way that you and I are to um, live with one another. So the first four commandments are more vertically oriented. The second half of the the Ten Commandments are more horizontally oriented. And Jesus' point is this. As Christians, on the other side of conversion, we still have a delightful but duty to obey this law, to love him and to love others. Not as a means for salvation, not as a means to earn grace, not as a means to maintain somehow God's uh, favor with us. That's already settled. But on the other side of conversion, you and I are still called to love God and to love others. Not because we have to, but because we want to, because we get to. And here in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, Paul is zeroing in on the second command, love your neighbor. That's what he does, by the way, when he lists out some of the commandments there in verse 9. Look at verse 9. I'm not going to read them all here, but he's pressing his point home about something that, that theologians call neighbor love. When you and I love others well, the way that God intends, we are fulfilling As Paul says in verses 8 and 10 here in Romans 13, the command to love others. So this brings me to the one big thing that I want to invite you to see this evening. The law of love is to frame the anthem of grace in our lives. The law of love is meant to frame the anthem of grace that you and I live out um, in our Christian walk. So here's what I want to do with the rest of our time tonight. I want to take two big categories and flesh this idea out. What loving your neighbor is 
and what loving your neighbor isn't. And one of the things that happens, I think, in this discussion about neighbor love is that we, we stay at too high of a level. Um, sometimes that's all that time allows. I, I get that. But um, it might leave you wondering exactly how this plays itself out in your day-to-day life. Like how, Bradham, is neighbor love supposed to look like with my literal neighbors in the neighborhood that I live or my coworkers or my boss or, or the places where I play sports, the gym, or whatever it may be, whatever hobbies you may have. And again, some of, of that is okay. In fact, really, um, as a, a, someone who stands in this place often and preaches the word to you, I have to trust that the Spirit can take His word and help you apply it to your life. It's impossible, actually, for me to be able to apply personally to every single person, you know, like what exactly the Spirit um, has for you. I have to really trust the Spirit to do his, his work. And that is the beauty of the Holy Spirit, by the way. He can, he can do that. But I, I think we have an opportunity tonight, just because we have time for it, to dig just a little deeper and, and get a sense of what maybe neighbor love might look like more practically for us as we think about these two big categories. What, what does loving your neighbor look like? And what does not loving your neighbor look like? Or loving your neighbor is this and it isn't this. So first, what loving your neighbor is. Here is a simple definition um, that I, I came up with this week. Loving your neighbor is treating them the way that God would treat them. And, I, and that's a very um, intentional definition. Listen to me say that again. Loving your neighbor is treating them the way that God would treat them. So we need to probably ask this question too, who's your neighbor, right? This is um, a big question to, to answer. Well, in one sense, your neighbor is anyone who isn't you. I mean, that's that's maybe sounds too simple, but it might be more helpful to say it this way. Your neighbor is anyone in your proximity that you can share God's love with in the way that God himself would. Now, sharing the love of God with other people doesn't necessarily mean it's always and only sharing the gospel like evangelism. It shouldn't be, be no less than that. It could also just mean you're, you're loving someone well, right? You're, you're serving someone with the love of God. But your neighbor, as you're serving that neighbor, it's only a neighbor if it's someone in your proximity that you're sharing God's love with in the way that God himself would. Now, the language of good, that word, is filled with moral meaning. To say that we are to love our neighbors according to their good is to assume that goodness has some objective meaning to it. And God is the one who determines that, that uh, meaning. Paul helps us out here um, in, in uh, Romans 13 by listing a few of the ways that we can love our neighbor. This is not an exhaustive list. In fact, it's not all of the, the um, others-focused commandments. But if you notice in verse, um, verse 9, he says that at the very beginning of that, you shall not commit adultery. All right? So let's just talk about that for a moment. What Paul is saying is that if you are married, you are to be committed to your spouse wholly. Okay, that sounds great. But what does that have to do with love of neighbor? Okay, Paul's not saying that necessarily your spouse is your neighbor, okay? What he is saying is, is this. If 
people who get married, stay married, and are committed to their spouse wholly, it begins to contribute to the flourishing of people, right? God's law, what God's expressing in his law is actually an expression of himself first and foremost, but he's also expressing the idea of what it looks like for you and I to flourish. So if we live in a way that God intends, which yes, has boundaries, not only will we flourish, our actions help order society in a way that we all flourish. So let's think of the inverse of that. If we do not have that commitment to our spouse, if we're married, if we, if we give into what he says we should not do here, what does that lead to? It leads to broken marriages, which leads to broken children, which leads to all of that together, a whole host of problems. But what happens if we refrain from that? It, it leads towards beautiful marriages, imperfect but beautiful marriages, children who are living in, in homes with parents together. The whole host of problems, for the most part, can be avoided. What, what Paul is trying to get to us here is to say that like the law of love, even when it comes to our marriages, is intended to serve the people around us as much as it's meant to serve us. He goes on to say, you shall not murder, right? He says, you should not steal, you shall not covet. These are all that, that um, second half of the commandments. And I want, think about the inverse of all of that. If, if we value life, right? If we don't steal from other people, we don't covet what other people have, it begins to contribute to a flourishing towards God's uh, pattern for us in, in, in life, which is to thrive. That's what love of neighbor, it, it does. Now, another way that we could talk about loving our neighbor is found in the one another's of the New Testament. You guys know these. I'm just going to mention a few here. Honor one another, greet one another, welcome one another, build one another up, speak the truth and love to one another, serve one another, submit to one another. All of the one another's that we find in the New Testament are meant to be expressions of love. When you and I engage in the one another's that we see in the New Testament in the local church, we are contributing to neighbor love. We are loving our neighbor well. And what ends up happening, the collective nature of that is that this church becomes stronger, becomes powerfully spiritually. So how do we do this though? How do we do this uh, well? Well, our heart posture, I think, towards our neighbors um, and our neighbors, again, anybody that's not you, it's someone that's in your proximity that you can share the love of God with in the way that God would, you're going to come up against opportunities and, 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 and situations where you're going to have to decide, am I going to show this neighbor love or not? And one of the things that I think would be really helpful for us is to be reminded of something that Peter says in his uh, letter, excuse me, his book, First Peter. He reminds us of what our posture toward our neighbor should look like. This isn't the only thing that we could say about how to do this, but I think this is really helpful um, for us tonight. He says it this way, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good 
If that should be God's will, then for doing evil. Again, these aren't the only things we can say about our posture toward our neighbor. But I think what you see Peter here capture are two things that should at least be guardrails for us as we engage in neighbor love. First is respectfulness. Respectfulness means that because everyone is made in the image of God, we do not resort to actions or language that is uncharitable or unfair. We don't shame people, we don't humiliate them, we don't dehumanize them. To dehumanize another person is to actually do something that flies in the face of how they were created in the image of God. But Paul, uh, Peter also says we are truthful. We share the hope that is within us. We don't shy away from the honesty that we should have about our faith. We, we uh, uh, don't water down the truths of, of God's word as we're talking with others. And if we're in the realm of a, a non-moral issue, we, we hold our preferences and opinions with an open hand. And, and, and what we do as we engage in neighbor love with those around us, we are trying to keep those two things in tension. And as you do that, you here's what it doesn't mean. It won't mean that you're not going to be misunderstood or, or, or misrepresented uh, and, and, and that your views won't ultimately be uh, rejected. It just means that you will have a clear conscience, as Peter says here, that you are treating others the way that God would treat them. Um, one of the ways that we talk about that here at Mercy View is we think about the kinds of people that we start to move towards, neighbors um, that are um, uh, in need of God's love. We, we've talked about something that's known as the quartet of the vulnerable. And uh, if you go to the Old Testament and parts of the New Testament, you, you begin to see four groups of people that start to bubble up and give us a sense of really the heart of God as, as it relates to like, who is our neighbor? And, and those, these four groups are not, this is not also not an exhaustive list, but these are four that we as a church are wrestling with. The, uh, Alan, our mission team leader and, and the mission team is wrestling with as we think about our own church's uh, missional efforts. But here are, the, here are the four groups of people, the, the orphan, the widow, the refugee, and the poor. Um, when we are trying to answer the question of who is our neighbor, this is a great way to answer it. We, we can say that at least it, it includes these folks because these are folks who are overlooked, they're sidelined, right, in society. And I'm really proud to say that we have a group of folks here in our church that are coming alongside some refugees from uh, another country in our world and serving them so well um, and um, seeing the Lord do some really great things in that uh, relationship. Again, it's not to say that these are the only four groups that we should ever go towards or move towards or that we will only move towards as a church. But to answer the question of like, well, Brad, okay, so... You're still not giving me a whole lot of like insight on, on who we're talking about here. Um, one way to answer that question is to say our neighbor is someone who is in proximity uh, to us that is in need of, of God's love and mercy. And mercy and, and even justice are things that um, we need to come alongside groups of people like this and, and, and be support to them and advocate for them in that. Now, one more thing, and we've got to end the, this section with this idea that, that we absolutely have to say, if we're going to ask the question of what does loving our neighbor look like, and it's this, we owe it to our neighbors 
to lovingly share with them the good news of the gospel. To stop short of that, friends, is actually unloving. See, our neighbor's ultimate good is their eternal destiny. And if their eternal destiny is secured in Jesus, that, that, that we have shared with them, they've placed their faith and trust in, in him, we can say that their greatest need has been met. Love of neighbor that is devoid of gospel proclamation is not real love. True love of neighbor means that we are intent on inviting others to know God personally because of what he has done in our lives, the good that we've experienced that comes from him. But we want them ultimately to know God because we know that for them, he can be their ultimate good and happiness as well. Our neighbor's ultimate good is that their eternal destiny is secure in Jesus. So we have to share the gospel with them. The law of love frames the anthem of grace in our lives in that way. Now, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I want to talk briefly about what loving your neighbor isn't. Uh, I've hinted at it a little bit tonight, but let's just bring some clarity to this, this idea because the idea of love in our culture is becoming more and more puzzling and obscure. And it's affecting, I think, how some of us view what love of neighbor should look like. Like, I don't know of anyone in our society that would not praise the concept of loving one's neighbor. But that does not mean that everything that our culture says we should do as it relates to love um, is, is correctly applying the principle that we're talking about tonight to that issue. Here's what I mean. When you hear the phrase, love of neighbor, used to justify immoral issues or non-moral issues, we as believers have a responsibility to disagree or to reframe what we understand that to mean. Like, live your truth and you do you are what many mean in our culture by loving one's neighbor. If you affirm me, I'll affirm you. Or if you do not object to my preference, I won't object to your preference is irreconcilable with a biblical vision for the love of neighbor. Um, in short, we don't love our neighbor well by omitting the truth to them or by blindly yielding to their desires because they think what they believe is loving. And here's what, here's what happens. Distortions occur many times because people are isolating God's love from his other attributes, namely his holiness or justice or wisdom. So I just want to encourage us to remember tonight that loving your neighbor as yourself is a summation of the law of God, not man. So that's, this is what that means. It is defined by, it is constrained by, it is fleshed out by God himself. So we can deduce from the principles in God's law what is most loving, but it's, it's, um, important for us to just be really careful with that as we move forward. But the mo more important thing is if we try to use the Bible to justify things uh, that we believe God has said and he really hasn't said about what is most loving, we're in really dangerous territory. Attempting to contort loving your neighbor to ideas of the common good which run contrary to God's law is in fact not loving your neighbor, we could argue it's actually hating your neighbor. 
It's the opposite of obedience to God, what, what Paul is saying that we should be about here tonight. I love how Rosaria Butterfield, who is a former professor of English at Syracuse, you might know her story. She was saved through the hospitality of a, of a pastor and his wife over time. She subsequently repented of her, her gay lifestyle out of that. But here's what she, she says. Sin and Christ cannot abide together. For the cross never makes itself an ally with the sin it must crush. When we advocate for laws and policies that bless the relationships that God calls sin, we are acting as though we think ourselves more merciful than God is. May God have mercy on us all. Rosaria is talking for sure about the, the, um, the, the lifestyle that God had called her out of. But you could apply what she is saying to any moral issue. When there is clear moral boundaries, you and I as believers must speak the truth in love. And in areas where there is room for respectful disagreement on non-moral issues, we speak our thoughts respectfully, carefully, but with open hands. And all the while, our heart in that is to, is to honor God and to treat others the way that, that God would treat them himself. So we've said that what frames the anthem of grace in our lives is the law of love. We've talked about what love of neighbor is and what it isn't. So how do we do all of this? How do we uh, obey the law of love because we're free to on this side of grace how do we obey the law of love in the right way well i think we need to revisit what we said earlier we said that through the law comes knowledge of sin and in romans 3 paul says it this way now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to god in other words, the law cannot give life. The law actually condemns us like a mirror because a perfectly righteous life is what is required for salvation. And because of our sin, we are now, now held accountable for our law breaking. So if we're going to have life, eternal life, namely, someone is going to have to bear the curse of the law that we deserve. And it's going to have to be someone who can keep the law in a way that we can't. And there's only one. His name is Jesus. And every human being needs Jesus' blood and righteousness. See, this is where the law was always leading. It was always leading to Christ. The law was not leading us to self-dependent law-keeping. It wasn't leading us to God-dependent law-keeping. And hear me on, on this one. We didn't just need a new motive. We needed a Savior. And the law was leading us from all law-keeping to earn grace, leading us to Jesus as the way of life. <clears throat> In other words, something had to be done for us that the law could not do. And if we are going to have eternal life, even though we're sinners and we deserve eternal death, we need a Redeemer, a Savior, someone to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And what the law cannot do for us is save us. We needed someone to bear that. That is why we need Jesus, friends. That's why you need Jesus. Is If you're here tonight and you've not placed your faith and trust in Jesus, that's why you need Jesus. That's what he came to do. Romans 8.3 says, God has done what the law could not do. How did he do that? 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. That's what Romans 8, 3 says. Jesus bore your condemnation. He died for your sin. He took your penalty. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The only way to eternal life through a redeemer, a savior, and a substitute is through Jesus. And Jesus became that substitute by bearing the curse, the condemnation of law that we deserved, and by fulfilling the righteousness that we could not perform. And so the question that Paul is dealing with And the second half of the book of Romans is, what does life look like for people who've experienced that? What does it look like for people who know that by faith alone, all of their sins are forgiven and all of their condemnation is removed and all of God's righteousness in Christ has become their righteousness? Well, it's what we've been looking at in the second half of this book. And today, Paul says to us this, because Jesus has redeemed you from the curse of the law, you are now free to live out the law of love, not as a means to earn God's grace, but because of it. Let's pray together.